I became almost like a baby again who didn't know how to live a life, how to know how to um, do the things that I used to know. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash speaks with Dr. Xiuyi Wang about his experience as an international student in the U.S. Hi, Xiuyi. Welcome. Hello, Sarah. Um, It's my honor to be here with you today. Oh, I'm so glad that we're here together. Would you mind sharing a bit about your cultural background, Xiuyi? Of course. In terms of racial um, identity, I identify as uh, Han Chinese, um, but in terms of ethnic identity, I identify as a Taiwanese. So a lot of people, especially uh, in the U.S., may not know exactly where Taiwan is. It's an island country located right off the coast um, of China. Um, geographically, it's below Japan, um, and it's a small democratic country, which I'm pretty proud of because just a few months ago, it becomes the first country in um, East Asia to legalize gay marriage. So it's very progressive. And then it has done a good job in containing the recent pandemic of COVID-19. Yeah, I'm a proud Taiwanese. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Sure. And I can hear your I can hear your pride in your country of origin at coming through. And it makes me smile to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Um I, I think it has been a journey in terms of how I feel about my ethnic identity as a Taiwanese before coming to the US. I think it this identity identity was not as salient to me, but after coming to the US, becoming a minority, um, that's the time when I realized how central this identity is to me and then starting to have a clear perspective on what are some kind of good and bad in Taiwanese culture and what I appreciate about Taiwanese culture as well as the things that I think um, can be improved upon um, in the country as well. And I think that's one of those unique experiences for international students is that they start out potentially being part of the dominant ethnic or cultural group. And if you come to the U.S. for the first time, then you may be a minority as opposed to people who grow up being in a minoritized group in the U.S. from the beginning. Yeah, Sarah, that's a very good point because I think that's exactly what you said. Coming to the U.S., is the moment of my, I would label it as awakening moment, right? That's a opportunity, such a precious opportunity for me to dissect all the identities I had, but I was oblivious to um, before um, coming to the U.S., yeah. Awakenings can be painful, right? Yeah. I see, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So it, it's such a, yes, and they often are painful. And so I, today we are going to be talking a lot about your awakenings when you came to the U.S., many of them what we would call rude awakenings, right? <laughs> um, especially around the things that were so challenging about transitioning as an international student to the United States. And we're gonna get into some great stories about some of those experiences. And Shuyi also, you you are a psychologist and you, you work with a lot of international college students who are transitioning, going mm-hmm. through this process as well. Okay, but I've asked you to, to focus today on your personal experiences because I suspect that many students can relate to your personal experiences and there's just, there's so much value in hearing how it was for you. You have kindly Thanks. agreed to that today. Yeah, I am happy to share and hopefully, you know, my experience um, will be resonating with some other international students, but I, I also recognize that it's a very unique journey for everyone. So I, like today, as you said, uh, we will be focusing mostly on my personal journey, uh, but I really hope that all international students who just arrived in this country would embrace this adventure. Yeah. Like how old were you when you came to the U.S. and what part of your education were you coming here for? Right. So I came to the U.S. in... 2010 for my master's in counseling psychology at Indiana University, Bloomington. After two years, um, I completed my master's degree and went back to Taiwan for a year uh, from 2012 to 2013. Came back again in 2013 for my PhD in counseling psychology, also at IU Bloomington, right? So that's a brief um, review of my education here. How old were you when you first came here? Um, I was 24, 25-ish. And you come from Taiwan to the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, yes. (laughs) It was very different from what I imagined because, you know, in Taiwan, my exposure to the U.S. was mainly through media, movies, televisions, and my imagination of the U.S. is like this big city lives, such as New York, Chicago. Um, But when I landed in Bloomington, oh, it was such a shock to me. Things were so different from what I expected. Um, Not that I didn't know anything about Bloomington before coming here, But still, I think a part of me was still holding on to the stereotypical image that I have about U.S. of this big city's life, right? So it was a very interesting (laughs) uh, experience after coming, like arriving in the Midwest. Not living up to the media representations that you'd grown up with. And I'm thinking the Midwest, too, has its own very unique set of customs and regional it's just it's got its own culture even within the united states and so yeah that's not really probably commonly depicted in the most popular notions of what the united states is (laughs) yeah exactly yeah yeah. 
So what, what was, so there's a, there's a culture shock just in general about this is not what you expected. What were some of the most challenging aspects of, of coming here? Hmm. I think the first thing came to mind would be language barrier. Yeah, that is the uh, most challenging um, barrier that I was aware of immediately after um, landing in the U.S. Even though I studied English when I was little, like thanks to my parents, they do care about my education and they, they sent me to after school kind of thing um, to pick up English. But speaking, speaking English is so different than um, writing or taking exams in English, which I did back in Taiwan, but we didn't have that much of, a, of an opportunity to practice speaking or communicating um, orally in English. So coming here immediately after getting out of, out of the plane, I had to speak in English to figure out a way to take the, what's the word, uh, take the shuttle from the airport to Bloomington. And that was a moment where I felt the anxiety um, speaking in English, right? And that has been such a formidable challenge throughout my education too, yeah, in day-to-day -day life, in, in, like just in general. And so it starts right away. It starts when your feet hit the ground. Yeah, exactly, Sarah. I think, you know, everyday simple task that I could easily navigate in Taiwan in the U.S., it becomes exhausting <laughs> to me. Even a simple thing as making a phone call. Um, at the beginning, I would rehearse in my mind what I would say, you know, and, and um, what's the right word to use before actually picking up the phone and uh, make the call. Yeah. And so you're here to study and learn academically, but everything that requires communication in the United States, you are having to essentially relearn aspects of just in order to do the most basic things to live your life. So it's almost like you've got two different courses of study happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the word relearn. I think that captures um, a lot of my struggles after coming here. The sense of loss of competency in meeting the daily challenges, of course, also academically, um, trying to figure out an efficient way to complete my assignments and picking up the different educational culture. All of a sudden, I lost the ability that I used to have back in time one. So I think that has been difficult. Yeah, because I'm thinking in yeah. order to be willing to come to another country for your education, you, you in your mid-20s, you probably had acquired a lot of skills related to, you said competency. I was thinking independence, mm -hmm. self-sufficiency, just being able to navigate your life 
in Taiwan comfortably, efficiently, smoothly, yeah. responsibly. And you could come here and almost picture like feeling in some ways like a child again, yeah. having to relearn these things and how, but how dissonant that is because you're not a child again, you're, you know, you're a grown man. And yet, yeah, you can't take anything for granted anymore. I think that that was exactly what it felt when I first came here. I became almost like a baby again who didn't know how to live a life, how didn't know how to um, do the things that I used to know. So being childish again um, was very permanent um, in the first stage of transitioning. That experience I think for me, it's how to describe it. It's like every day there's a sense of failure following me everywhere. Because whenever I spoke with someone or whenever I need to write in English, I held a high standard for myself, repeatedly seeing that I'm not meeting the standards that I set for myself kept reminding me how inadequate I I was. The relentless, self-defeating thoughts, um, critical voices were, I experienced that on a daily basis at the beginning. You said relentless, you know, a relentless sense of Mm -hmm. failure. And at a time when you are working so hard just to survive and just to figure out the basics. Uh, Just that combination sounds really painful. Do you hear that from a lot of international students that you work with, that they are also hard on themselves in the transition? Yeah, Sarah, I think this is a common issue among international students who just arrived here because language challenge is the first thing they face. Um, A lot of international students try different ways to improve their English proficiency uh, after coming here. And that is not an easy thing to do. It requires uh, practice. And sometimes it's just a matter of time. But a lot of international students, they are very much academically successful in their home country and so coming here they probably have a high expectation for themselves as well as from their family members or friends you know and so i i I definitely see a lot of international students not being patient with themselves in terms of cross-cultural adjustment journey and wanting to fix everything all at once, but that creates so much pressure and hardship. You've mentioned perfectionism now several times and growing up with high standards for yourself academically. I wonder if you might share a story about the school system in Taiwan and the kinds of cultural values around being very high achieving and high performing that you grew up with? Yeah, sure, Sarah. Um, 
think in Taiwan, there's a very narrow focus on academic achievement for students. And the society just in general um, values you know, academic success more than any other things. Uh, so growing up with my parents also had a high expectation for me. And actually just by the meaning of my name, it conveys that you know, my, my parents' expectation for me, like the meaning of my name, the first character, Shu, means book. And the second character, E, means perseverance. I'm, you know, wow. if you put the two together, yeah, <laughs> like my parents really want me to be persistent in reading and achieving, you know, highly in the school system. So, yeah, gr- growing up, I constantly was ranked pretty much on the top of my classes. And so that becomes a central identity to me being academically academically successful and the school system, the education system reinforces that idea in that things are very different right now. But when I was in elementary school or middle school, the, the physical corporal punishment is very much still, was very much still a thing. So anything less than, you know, after we took an exam, and the teacher would hand down the results after the exam, according to the most um, the students who had the highest scores. But anything less than a hundred percent would be punished. Yeah. So I think for me that kind of planted the seed of perfectionism yeah, in my mind that. Anything less than 100% is not acceptable. Wow. And the punishment was what? It depends. (laughs) Um, Typically, it will be some, how do you say that? Like uh, splash? Is that a word that you use? Like spank? Um, Like spank or slap? Like they would hit, they would hit you? Yes, yes, yeah. Wow. And some teachers, they have different preference in terms of the, um, the places that they would hit you. The location like of the spanking? Yeah, the location, right. The most um, typical location would be the, the hands. And some teachers would do the butt. That's another common, common location too. Yeah. And this would be in front of your classmates? Yes. Wow. So there's a so there's a really strong internal and external motivation to get perfect grades. Exactly. In that environment, I mean, I imagine it's was fairly successful. Like, I imagine being a student in that environment, I would be highly motivated not to get punished physically and also like the social shame that I imagine comes with that kind of punishment. So I'm not endorsing it, but I'm, I'm imagining it was, it's fairly effective. Right. And And that was um, an acceptable cultural practice back at that time. Right now it was, you know, unlawful, but when I was young, it was, um, you know, not acceptable. Parents consented to that as well. Right. Most parents would even feel grateful for 
teachers doing that. I feel like the teachers care enough to uh, implement this punishment to keep the students in line and keep their grade, keep their grades, grades up. Yes. And I get the benefit of seeing your face while we have this conversation and and you are smiling and almost like chuckling a little bit as you talk about this. I wonder why, you know, what that's about for you that you could tell these stories, which to me sound really painful with some laughter and like even a sense of humor about it. Yeah, that's a good question, Sarah. I think for me, that is like right now, having done some work trying to come to terms with my perfectionism. And the first step was to recognize uh, what are some contributing factors that lead to my relentless perfectionism. You know, thinking back, I was able to, being able to name the different developmental history, social cultural beliefs that have probably played a role in my perfectionism, it felt liberating to me yeah i feel like i right now whenever the perfectionist voice coming up again i can you know take a step back from that process be curious about where did i pick up that belief and is it really helpful for me right now or am i just replicating the unhealthy expectations or um uh, cultural practices. Yeah. So I think that's where I am at this point. That's beautiful. You've worked really hard to get to a place where you can recognize the absurdity of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Wow. So you go from that that kind of conditioning and that kind of competency to landing here and struggling with literally everything. Um, let's talk about how your cultural differences and the language barrier impacted your experience of relationships, like building friendships and also just navigating things like social customs, grocery stores, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I think um, the cultural difference really permeates all aspects of life. As you mentioned, social relationships and day-to-day activities. I think I can start with social relationships. I remember first I had so much passion and enthusiasm wanting to make some close friends in the U.S. But I realized that, of course, language is one barrier that get into the way of that deep connection, but also the general difference in how people see friendships. I think right now, I realize more that in the US, such a highly mobile society, friendships are less permanent and lasting than a lot of other cultures. But I didn't know that when I first came here. So that has led to some disappointment and self-doubt, right? Like, Can you give an example of like someone that you tried to form a friendship with or 
a way in which you were disappointed or let down? Sure. One event that has been so vivid in my mind was a time when I was in my master's. I thought I was fairly close to a friend. Um, and one time we went out uh, to a bar for a happy hour or whatever. I cannot really remember, but uh, we, we did have such a good time there in a bar and this friend before we ended and before we headed home, this friend told me that uh, we should do this again on Thursday or something. So she specified another day. And I was like, oh, sure, of course, I would love that. And at that time, I also had part-time job on campus. And then I had a shift on Thursday, but I uh, found a substitute for my shift. Just really excited about this, another opportunity to hang out with this friend. And starting from the afternoon, I was looking at my phone, uh, expecting a call from her, but nothing happened. So it was, I was confused at that time, like not knowing what that meant. Yeah, and then even after that particular uh, event, there was another time I also remembered clearly was before, before we graduated from the master's program, you know, the same group of people, like that friend and other friends in, in, in the cohort, we were talking about having a hot pot gathering in a friend's place. And so I went out to prepare all the materials for, for the hot pot. And then again, it didn't happen. So yeah, those were some, um, some, some memories came to mind. Gosh, and I'm thinking those, again, you're laughing, but I can imagine how deeply disappointing and painful that was at the time. Like in both of those stories, you did a lot of preparation to make yourself available. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so you're right. And that, like back then there were, I felt, you know, confused, disappointed, frustrated, um, rejected right, even yeah yeah right and not not even sure if this friendship meant as much to me as to them yeah I'm wondering if some of those experiences led you to seek out students from Taiwan or from Asian cultures or you know how how did you navigate how did you navigate that? Yeah, yeah, Sarah. So I, I think hmm, I was. I think it's fair to say that when I first came here, I was more active in expanding my social circle with uh, people from the dominant culture. But after um, some frustrating uh, interactions, the the effort um, decreased. Like I just let it happen more naturally in terms of me kind of really reaching out or going out of my way to meet people from the dominant culture. Yeah. So my social circle, I think, gradually becomes more 
of people coming from like Taiwanese people. Yeah, yeah. So I think okay. that's in the process. That makes sense in a way that you got you got discouraged. Like you really put in a lot of effort yeah. and people from the dominant culture were not were not meeting you halfway. So you started forming relationships with people who shared your cultural background. Were there challenges associated with that as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can definitely talk about the challenges, you know, forming relationships with Taiwanese people. But I do want to say that I think mm, the frustration coming from my effort trying to connect with um, people from the U.S., it was definitely a difficult time when I first came here. But right now, I understand that it's simply um, a different way of people viewing relationships, and it's not necessarily applicable to all, you know, U.S. Americans. So, you know, I, I, I think right now, it's simply a difference to me. And the frustration or discouragement um, wasn't there as much. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost, a, it sounds like you're saying initially it was very painful and it felt very personal. But as you have been here longer and gotten to know more, you know, do yeah. dominant culture people in the United States, that you see it as a difference, but it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just yeah, a difference. Yeah, and you don't, yeah, and you yeah. don't take it as personally. Uh -huh. And also I'm hearing that you've realized that not everyone's like that either. Yeah, Sarah, that's, thank you for you know, um, paraphrasing. That's exactly like what I was trying to convey. Yeah, it's simply a difference, not this. So, not much judgment attached to the difference right now. And I know that it's not directly directed toward me as a person. And I, I also start to enjoy this, you know, relationship, this type of interaction as well. Because yeah. you know to, yeah, it's a part of that relearning. Like once we know what to expect or what, what is more likely to happen, it's, it's easier to relax and start to enjoy it for what it is. But there was a really steep learning curve. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, oh, I, and going back to your original question about my relationships with other Taiwanese people, there's also a challenge there because the, circle, the social circle is more restricted. The Taiwanese international students in the school is not a really big population. So, you know, initially, I think initially it's easier to communicate or to hang out with people from the same national, from, from the same nation. nation yeah. But as we know each other deeper, there's some fundamental differences started to be more and more evident. But in that restricted, restricted circle, you know, I feel more constrained in, in the way in, in terms of the ways that I can manage those differences in 
opinions and thoughts in political affiliation, yeah, things like that. I'm imagining, so as a white American, if I went abroad to do a study abroad or to move to another country with a very different culture from the United States, so maybe not even a Western country or English-speaking country, and I would be comforted initially by other people from the United States and people who were native English speakers, there would be a real relief at being able to just kind of be more natural initially. But just because we're white and from the United States doesn't mean we really have anything deeper in common. Right. And so it might, yeah. So that initial relief followed by other issues that can arise like political differences, religious differences, just personality Mm -hmm. differences, there's there's very little likelihood then that those would those people would be my best friends in regular life like i'm very picky about my best friends and so just a random collection of people who share the same basic ethnic background doesn't mean you're just going to naturally be really close to one another yeah yeah exactly and another thing came to mind is that if I have two friends who are, you know, not getting along with one another, it also puts me in a very difficult spot because it's not necessarily my problem, but, you know, they may want me to show certain affiliation with, um, with a certain party. So that, that's kind of difficult too. This is a common thing that I encountered. Um, when it's a small group of people that spend a lot of time together their issues are going to arise and then that can be really awkward Mm -hmm. within the group yes 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 as you experienced these social difficulties did you wonder if people were discriminating against you based on your cultural background your racial identity I think I was lucky in that I, in my times in the U.S., I rarely experienced blatant discrimination because of my racial or ethnic identities. There was a very, um, just a few instances where I didn't feel comfortable. Yeah, but in general, that I think I was lucky in you know, maybe being in a college town where people are generally more open-minded, you know, that wasn't, you know, too much of a challenge for me. Were you aware of, as a, as a Taiwanese or Asian appearing individual, like, were you aware of being part of a model minority when you came here? Were you aware that that was a, that that was a thing? Yeah. I think when I first came here, I was most of my energy was spent on trying to survive. Um, so I didn't have that much of mental space left to figure out what's going on in my surrounding. The but, really complex racial dynamics in the United States, right? Right. right. Yeah. But uh, from like later on, when I learned more about the racial dynamics in the U.S. Like it really opened my mind and gave me the vocabularies to describe some of my experiences. Right? And the model minority stereotype 
I think there was um, there were a few times when I was asked to like by some classmates to offer additional tu tutoring uh, when we were taking uh, stats class. Um, yeah. So oh, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. I wanted to also ask you before we kind of transition to reflecting on, you know, what you've learned about yourself and talking about some of that stuff kind of based on where mm -hmm. you are today. I wanted to, uh, for us to talk about, make sure we hit on the financial challenges. I imagine that coming to the U.S. for school is very expensive and you pay higher tuition rates, flights home are very expensive and yeah, I mean, education, higher education is already very expensive as an international student, even more so. What types of financial challenges did you encounter? Yeah. So that was a big thing, a very real stress uh, when I was a student. Wow, because as you know, international students pay the full tuition fee and not all international students come from an afflu affluent family background. So for me, I took a, a big amount of loan from Taiwanese government in order to come here. Yeah, so I had to try all the ways that I can to cut down my expenses. Even that means lowering my quality of living and then also probably not everyone knows that international students have certain restrictions when it comes to work. International students are mainly only allowed to work on campus. So any jobs off campus is not a choice for international students. And um, on campus student jobs are usually pay very low wages, right? Yes, yes, yeah. So I think I started off picking up because when I first came here, I didn't have many. Let me backtrack a little bit. In order to work, find an on-campus job, typically a SSN, social security number is required. But for most newly arrived international students, we don't have that now. So the first thing that I did after coming here was finding jobs on the discussion board like a uh, thing in, at, at IU. At IU we have a, a place where you know people can post information like things to sell kind of like crack, crack list. IU's version crack, crack list. Yeah and there was a section on jobs. Yeah that's where I um, went for first. So uh, cleaning jobs and all the experiments, you know, <laughs> like being a participant in some experiments. Yeah, so those are those were the jobs that I started off when I came here. Wow, and that you didn't need a social security number for? No, right. The cleaning, cleaning jobs were off records, like paying cash in person you know so that's pretty much not regulated by any anything 
right but, but very limited but very very mm-hmm. limited and you needed to start making money quickly when you arrived yeah yeah so in addition to finding those limited opportunities to increase my income the other way is to cut down my expense right and it can be done in different ways such as eating like buying food buying food that is less mm, nutritious so they're more affordable or you know whenever i learn of an on-campus event that includes free food i would go <laughs> a, yeah. lot of, a lot of pizza huh as much <laughs> yeah, exactly. free pizza as you could yeah for sure yeah or um, limiting my entertainment like not traveling or going home less than i uh, um than i want right? going going back to visit family and friends in taiwan mm. yeah how often were you able to go back in my masters i didn't go back for two years so i came for <laughs> the masters program and you know went back only after i graduated oh my gosh that yeah. is a long time yeah it was uh, two years but starting my phd well i i began going back home once a year even then so much life happens in a year and I'm just imagining going through how much happens in a year for your family, your friends, for you personally, and you add in all of the social challenges that we've been talking about, right? So the difficulty really finding the right people over here to really bond with and feel close to and not being able to go back home. That yeah. it just sounds so lonely. You're right, Sarah. That's a lot of a long time, and you know, some that reminds me of mm, what an international student shared with me. That just stuck with me. Like this person said, they can go a week without talking to anyone. Except saying hi to uh, the bus driver. Yeah, so I think that social isolation, the feeling of loneliness, is so difficult for a lot of international students. A week can go by, and the only person you say hi to is a bus driver or a cashier, right, yeah. or something like that. And mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, we know that loneliness. Increases our risk for depression and for just generally mental health problems, right? That loneliness causes some of those mental health problems and this and mm. the stress of being poor, right? In a yeah. new country, I feel like I I am really lucky in the sense that I had some supportive advisors and. I was in counseling psychology program, which typically, you know, people in counseling psychology are more aware of the cultural differences, are more inclusive. But I think for international students, not everyone is as fortunate as I am. 
and yeah, then then the sense of loneliness could be you know even a bigger issue um, for for them. Right, we are right. The mental health professions, at least, are more likely to acknowledge those things and talk about them and be curious about your experience. Yeah, um, plenty of other programs don't. They just kind of expect mm-hmm. that you perform as well as everyone else and we're not here to talk about your feelings yeah yeah exactly so did you drive did you have a car in the u.s i didn't have a car until my last year um in bloomington right so yeah it it made a huge difference in, in my in my life especially living in a college town you know, having a car makes my life much more easier. But before then, the main transportation I relied on was my bike and, and the bus. Or sometimes my friends come, you know, give me a ride, things like that. And this was in Indiana? Yeah. Where it gets very, very cold in the winter? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, you know, and I, as again, as someone who's native to Florida, I've never had to deal with uh, getting around in the snow or ice or freezing cold rain. And I have a network of family and friends in the area that have always been available to me. So there's a whole lot of privilege that comes from staying here for me. And that's, you know, by, by design in a lot of ways, why I chose to stay in Gainesville. I'm wondering, given, you know, we only, I know we only scratch the surface of some of this, but given everything that you endured in terms of your transition here to the U.S., your two years in your master's degree, you went back to Taiwan for a year, and then you came back for more. You did your PhD, and now you're working as faculty at the University of Florida. So you're you've been here a while now. What you feel like you learned about yourself, what you feel like you gained as a result of those hardships. That's a big question. <laughs> Absolutely. And we may just scratch the surface of that question too, but yeah, what stands out to you? Mm-hmm. My first reaction was an appreciation of my resilience and, you know, just having a better understanding of, oh, wow, I can survive all the challenges. I do have the strength to cope with, you know, all the barriers that come up in the cross-cultural um, transition. I'm definitely feeling that appreciation. Um, of just of, how, how resilient you are, how much mm-hmm. you're capable of. Yes. 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 Like stronger than mm-hmm. you knew, stronger than you knew you were. Yeah. And it's hard to keep that perspective when we are challenged, right? It's so easy to fall into that my trap of, oh, how can I get through this? <laughs> like, I don't have what it takes to survive. Uh, yeah, like when you're when you're barely staying afloat, it can it when when you're barely staying afloat, you probably don't feel like you're a strong swimmer. Yes, yeah, for sure. 
And the second feeling that I'm experiencing right now is an immense sense of gratitude for everyone that has helped me in some ways during my journey. I think without the support, I couldn't have, you know, made it myself to this point. Mm-hmm. What about your perfectionism? What's happened to your sense of needing to be perfect? Well, um, it's still there. <laughs> Darn. Darn it. Yeah, but I think um, it's more like a background noise to me now. It's not taking up the central stage um, in my mind. It's still there, but you know, it can be there. I I can still function. Uh, without being, you know, overly influenced by that voice. So I think I have, in some ways, come to terms with not being perfect. Um, and then with that perfectionist voice being in the background. What about your friendships, your community, your social circle here in the U.S.? I think also with time, I have made some really close friends in each of my stages here in the U.S. Like when I was in my master's, there were some uh, close friends. And in in my PhD, I have also gotten close with some friends. And even right now uh, with my colleagues, I really feel a sense of belonging that I didn't feel before. Yeah. Of course, it's hard to not feel lonely nowadays when we are still in like under this pandemic and experiencing the stay-at-home order, but I feel like there's a group of people I can rely on, I can reach out to right now, so I really appreciate that. I'm glad to hear that that part has gotten better over time. Yeah, for sure. You know, when we were preparing for this interview, you had said just the amount of energy that it took to work on all of the barriers to adjusting and transitioning and just getting through your day-to-day life was so intense. And you also had shared that all of the significant changes and transitions that you were going through here brought up a sense of loss. And Kenneth Wang has this notion of cross-cultural loss. And I wonder if we could just touch on that here at the end. Yeah, sure. I think when I read the notion cross-cultural loss, again, by the researcher Kenneth Wang, it resonated with me so deeply because it captures my experiences in this journey in that relocating to a new environment involves losses at multiple levels like your social life social customs educational system everything like that and the the competence as well food yeah Um, music mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. even you know you rights and privileges as a citizen yeah right like you lost so many privileges when you came here. Right, yeah. 
think that may be less evident for U.S. citizens, but for international students, uh, one thing that we have to be constantly aware of is, you know, make sure our visa is valid, and that requires, you know, taking a certain amount of credit hours per semester. And like right now, under the social political climate, traveling can be an issue as well. So yeah, those all of the things that are taken for granted for a U.S. citizens are something that international students have to worry about. And you know, we didn't even get into the challenges of doing a master's degree and a PhD, right? Of all of the academic rigors that you encountered. We're talking about what you know the other curriculum that you were working on as an international student, but just just imagining how competitive it is to be in graduate school as an international student and expectations that you're performing as well as everyone else. And meanwhile, you are facing that life may very well be much, much harder for you. Yeah, I think as I listen to you, like that makes me think of so many effort that is um, under this What's the word? I'm blanking on that term. Like not, un, unseen effort? Yeah, yeah, right. Invisible? Right. Yes, yes, unseen effort. That's, that's um, like a good way of describing it, right? Like turning in an assignment that could involve, you know, me going, uh, paying multiple visits to the writing center to have it added or have my you know, just taking out resources to make sure that assignment um, is meeting the standards that um, are expected for a graduate student or coming up to the front of the classroom teaching a class that, you know, may requires, require hours of preparation leading up to that point. Uh, hours of additional preparation, right? Yeah. On top of what you're already, would already need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. What would you What would you say to young Shu Yi, who was just landing in the country many years ago? If you could go back in time and whisper a few things to him as he is arriving in the United States. Yeah. yeah I'm- getting a little bit emotional when thinking back um, to the time when I just arrived here. I, I would say, you know, Shui, this is not going to be easy. The years ahead of you will be full of frustration, painful self-criticism, sacrifice. Yeah, all those difficult emotions will at some point hit you. And I want you to always remember that you have what it takes to manage those crises and come out on the other side being a more mature person. And I also want you to know that you won't regret taking on this journey, um, this experience 
will enrich it will enrich your life that's beautiful i got thank emotional you. i got emotional hearing you talk thank you yeah <laughs> me too <laughs> yeah. yeah it's nice i imagine it's meaningful to ref reflect on yourself at that age from this position where you are now that 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 i imagine that feels really good in some ways yeah it feels like in, in the process of reviewing my cultural transition i'm also developing a more coherent narrative about myself seeing more clearly all the challenges the achievements the, the blessings that I have received throughout the, 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 this journey. Yeah. Thank you for offering this space, Sarah. Thank you so much, Shugi. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.